It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, July 16th, 2021. Happy Friday and welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I'm inviting you into the show as the host. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here from New York City today and Monday as well. Thanks for listening. And there are many ways to listen live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. We recommend listening across our great affiliates all over the country. You can stream the show. You can watch on Fox Nation. You can go to odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Many, many options And they're consolidated at GuyBensonShow.com, which is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. The free podcast is there every day, on demand, for you, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com. You've got options. Here is the lineup today. Chris Wallace of Fox News Sunday. He's going to be here later this hour. We'll break down some of the big political stories and controversies of the week with Chris. Kat Timpf joins me in studio. In the next hour, she and I were on set together with Gutfeld on, was that Wednesday? These days have really blurred together. I think it was Wednesday. And she'll be here in studio with me on the radio coming up. Looking forward to that. And then in the final hour, Kelly Maher, a friend of mine, she's got this amazing project that we've been tracking now for almost an entire year. She was going to do an entire 365-day cycle of eating only food that she produced on her farm or fished or hunted with a few little bartering rules and a few exceptions. It's fascinating. We'll remind you, if you've heard from Kelly before, of the rules. And I have questions because she's almost done. I could not do this, what she's pulled off. I would be no longer with us. (laughs) But she has done it, and she's thrived. It's an amazing story and a cool thing for a Friday. We'll check in with Kelly. Also, Woke Tales will be coming up in the next hour, so you don't want to miss that. We'll have a lot to cover, which seems to be the case every single day. Let's do a Fox News alert here to get going and bring you the stats as we always do on coronavirus, which is the subject, actually, of our opening monologue. Confirmed cases in the U.S., almost 40 million. Low ball, but that's the official number. The death toll, 607,704 Americans have died of coronavirus. The Dow is way down almost 300 points at this hour right now. And the week will wrap up down on Wall Street, just south of here, in less than an hour. So I want to begin the show today on a few different COVID-related subjects. One involving the WHO. One involving censorship and one involving anti-science, terrible signaling from government officials. And they're all interrelated. So we've spoken previously and we 
touched on this last night on Kennedy as well, about the WHO, the World Health Organization, which is this group, once widely respected, they've really taken a huge hit to their credibility because they are in the pocket of communist China. The Chinese Communist Party selected their current leader, Tedros. They wield disproportionate power over the WHO, and WHO has actually promulgated some Chinese misinformation and lies during the pandemic. They parroted a false statement from the Chinese government about human-to-human transmission at a key early stage. They also hilariously and ludicrously praised Beijing's cooperation and transparency. Just embarrassing. Then they were tasked with, of course, the CCP's guidance, let's put it that way, it's really choreography, to conduct a sham investigation into the origins of coronavirus, which started in Wuhan, China. Where exactly did it start and how? It looks increasingly likely that it escaped from a lab, but that wasn't the story for a very long time. And of course, you weren't even allowed to talk about other options. Oh no, it was the wet market, they insisted. And it had nothing to do with that Wuhan bat coronavirus lab. Certainly not. And the WHO, I mean, everything about this investigation was basically corrupted. China could handpick people and veto people who could join this group and this delegation. They denied all sorts of access to documents and information. They limited access to the lab. It was a joke. It was a whitewash. Even the mainstream media, even the Biden administration were like, no. Of course, the Biden administration says, we need to do better. Let's let's uh, leave it up to the WHO to have a second shot at this. And I don't know why they believe that they would get it right the second time. They're still compromised. China's still not going to give them the information that they want or need if they want it. I'm not even sure if the WHO wants to get to the bottom of this if they are running interference for China the way that they have now for over a year. But because that investigation was so deeply flawed, fatally flawed, about the origins of a virus that has killed millions of people around the world, even the leader of WHO has to admit, and now he has, that there were some problems. WHO has been correcting some of the errors in their own report. Turns out the original family unit where this thing seemed to have first been detected in humans, they got the wrong family. I mean, it's just a mess. And Tedros, Dr. Tedros, who's the WHO director, he actually gave a statement this week where he kind of admitted the transparency from China. I mean, it it takes a lot for this guy to criticize China. They put him in this position. They were his hand-selected leader of WHO. But it's so obvious, and I think he's so concerned about the credibility of WHO being shattered that he's willing to admit a little bit about the lack of transparency and also just gently suggest, gosh, maybe one of the theories about where this thing came from, i.e. the lab, that might have been uh, dismissed a little prematurely. Let's listen to cut five. We are asking, actually, China to be transparent, open, 
and cooperate, especially on the information raw data that we asked for at the early days of the pandemic. One of the challenges is uh, what you mentioned, um, you know, access to uh, raw data, especially the data, the start of the pandemic, the raw data was not, was not shared. Uh, there was a premature push to, um, uh, you know, uh, especially uh, reduce one of the uh, options like the lab theory. Ah, there was a premature push to reduce one of the options like the lab theory, you think? So when even this dude is saying this stuff, you know that everyone recognizes what an absolute joke the first so-called probe into coronavirus origins was. That's exactly the way China wanted it, of course. And I'll make this point, and it seems like such an obvious point, perhaps almost as obvious as maybe the bat coronavirus that started in Wuhan, China, might have something to do with the bat coronavirus research lab in Wuhan, China, right? There's that point that many people have made. Many conservatives were making it long before Jon Stewart popularized it, but at least he did. The other intuitive point that I'll just put out there again, and it's not definitive proof. This is not dispositive, but think about this. China has been doing everything within its power to prevent the world from getting the information and the access to determine where this disease started. They don't want us to know if it started in a wet lab from a bat. First of all, they would probably have found sort of the chain of custody, if you will, here. The bat to another animal, to a human. They would identify the animal. That this has happened previously in, in other, you know, smaller outbreaks of other diseases. They haven't found it yet, maybe because it doesn't exist. But if it was the wet market, if this was all just sort of like spontaneously cropping up in nature, why would the Chinese Communist Party be so hell-bent on preventing us from knowing that? It makes a lot more sense, does it not? Again, this is just circumstantial evidence on top of other evidence. But in terms of circumstantial evidence, and again, I'm just intuitive question. Might it make sense that they are guarding this so frantically, so angrily, bullying people who ask questions that they don't like, trying to stack the deck against real investigations? Might it be because it actually did emerge from a lab where they were doing something that perhaps they shouldn't have been doing? Right, the woman who was in charge of that lab had said, oh, I have no connection to the Chinese military whatsoever. That was recently exposed as a lie. Most Americans, for good reason, now believe this at least was leaked accidentally from this lab. If you were the Chinese Communist Party, would you be doing everything you possibly can to shrouding the truth? If, it, if the truth is that it was just organic in a wet market or... Would you be going through all of these machinations to shroud the truth if you are actually implicated in what happened here? If you're responsible, if you were doing research on this type of 
stuff and it accidentally leaked, which would look like, you know, bad medical practices, bad research practices or worse. Which one of those two options, based on everything you know about human nature, which of those two options is more likely? Now, the types of questions that I'm asking right now, and we've been asking now for months, for quite a long period of time were sort of verboten in elite media, on social media, uh, among the establishment, the scientific establishment largely lined up behind this. You were not supposed to talk about the lab leak theory. If you did, you were excoriated. You were a conspiracy theorist, dangerous misinformation. And now everyone's like, oops, oh, well, I guess this might be a thing. Trump's gone. We can't be mad about him anymore. So maybe we can admit maybe this is uh, an issue and China was lying about it. And yet, and we talked about this in passing on the show yesterday. Here's the White House announcing yesterday, along with the Surgeon General, they're going to start flagging at the White House stuff that they view as misinformation and sending it over to Facebook because they want stuff banned, censored, suppressed, cut for. We've increased uh, disinformation research and tracking uh, within the Surgeon General's office. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. We're working with okay, doctors enough. and... We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. Basically, hi, we're the government, we're the White House, we don't like this, you must take this down. Now, look, I'm against disinformation and misinformation. I think it can be very dangerous. We've worked very hard to be truthful and accurate and timely, especially about a deadly pandemic on this show. I'm not endorsing misinformation or denying that it exists. What worries me is this is the same crew back when it was the Biden campaign that declared the Hunter Biden story to be disinformation from Russia. It wasn't. That was made up, baseless. It was a lie. That was a legitimate story that the Biden team decided was disinformation, labeled it as such, and everyone fell in line. The media wouldn't cover it. Big tech censored it. Then you go to the lab leak theory. Same thing. Misinformation, conspiracy theory. You couldn't post about it. It was suppressed. And they enforced it pretty intensely. Until oops, never mind. I don't trust these political actors to correctly assess misinformation and disinformation. And this collusion between government and big corporations, in this case, big tech, to suppress information or censor information, I find it very concerning, even though I share worries about misinformation and ignorance involving coronavirus. And I just gave you two very recent, very significant examples of why I'm concerned. And I think it is well justified. Now, when we come back, speaking of misinformation and false ideas, there are some places in the country, prominently now Los Angeles County, reimposing mask mandates for everybody, whether you're vaccinated or not. I have a thing or two to say about that, and I'll get to it as soon as we return. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. 
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So before the break, I mentioned this. Los Angeles County has reimposed a mask mandate. When you're indoors in Los Angeles County, you must wear a mask regardless of whether you are vaccinated or unvaccinated because they're saying cases are going up. Now, we know the stats that I read earlier in the week, I believe, in fact, they've shown that more than 99% of new cases and new deaths from COVID are among unvaccinated people. These spikes and surges such as they exist, and they do exist, are among almost exclusively unvaccinated people. Yes, there are breakthrough infections. I saw Rich Eisen from the NFL Network said that he's vaccinated, he got COVID. Actually, a buddy of mine from college, he and his wife both have COVID even though they're both vaccinated. Now, They are not having to go to the hospital. They're having sort of, you know, a mild to moderate bout of coronavirus. What we know about the vaccines, number one, they prevent you from getting coronavirus overwhelmingly. Not to say that you're not going to have a breakthrough. It happens. But overwhelmingly, you're safe from getting the virus. If you do get it, you are extremely likely to have a moderate or mild case. You are almost completely unlikely to go to the hospital And close to 0% chance you're going to die. That is the benefit of the vaccine. So if you have public officials in places like Los Angeles County, they've done a bunch of insane anti-science things. For example, banning outdoor dining. Remember that? That was them. The anti-science stuff is crazy. They're saying, all right, everyone has to put their masks back on indoors, even if you're vaccinated. This is against the science. It's against the CDC. It is also, I think, deepening skepticism among vaccine-hesitant people. I have a friend who lives in Southern California. He texted me yesterday. He has not been vaccinated. He's hesitant. He's skeptical. He said, see, this shows the government doesn't even believe that the vaccines work because they're making even the vaccinated people put the mask back on. And the cases are going up. I'm like, the cases are going up among people like you, unvaccinated people. But you're punishing everyone. You're sending a signal that it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not. That's what the government of Los Angeles County is telegraphing. And people are getting the message, like my friend saying, aha, this proves that the vaccines don't work, which isn't true. But that's the message being sent, which is anti-science, counterproductive and stupid. Congratulations, L.A. Chris Wallace up next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back on this Friday from New York. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. Also glad to welcome back to the program Chris Wallace. 
anchor of Fox News Sunday. You can check your local listings, your local Fox station, or watch the replay later on on Fox News Channel. He's also the author of Countdown 1945, a bestseller. Chris, great to have you back here. Great to be back, guys. I am very eager to hear your take on the sequencing and the dynamics at play with this bipartisan infrastructure bill and then this mammoth, eye-popping $3.5 trillion package that Democrats in the Senate at least say that they've agreed upon. And right now, I'm hearing from lawmakers in both chambers saying we're not really sure where this is going on either of those two fronts. We don't know who has the votes uh, for either of these bills, what order they would go in. Is there a game of chicken being played here? What do you hear about whether or not this huge amount of spending might go through? Because it feels like everything's kind of tentative and the ice is very thin. I think that's exactly right. And and that's what I'm hearing is that nobody quite knows, which is unusual because Usually in Washington, by the time you you get to showtime, the president is going to make an announcement or the majority leader is going to bring something to the floor. You know what's going to happen. But but we we really don't, which makes it kind of exciting if you're in the news business. Not sure it's so exciting if you're uh, one of the people who's either trying to pass the bill or kill it. You know, you've got it it is this extraordinary uh, conglomeration of things that that. Democrats, the president and congressional Democrats are trying to pass a trillion dollar uh, bipartisan infrastructure plan, you know, as we normally think of infrastructure, roads, highways, bridges. Uh, and that's the bipartisan plan. They've got at least five Republicans on board, we think, although I don't think all of them are solid. Uh, but you actually need 10 Republicans on board uh, to, to break a filibuster. And then you know, the the White House is saying, so we're going to pass part of this with you guys and the rest that we can't pass with you guys, we're going to pass by ourselves. And that is, at least at this point, a three and a half trillion dollar. <laughs> uh, they call it human infrastructure. Uh, it, it, it's a social spending bill. You know, it expands Obamacare. It, it extends uh, child care. Uh, it, it does some climate change initiatives. Uh, education, a variety of other things. They it's put just immigration. Billion dollars they have some immigration of, of, in there, apparently. Well, they're trying to do that. And, and that's an interesting aspect to this as well. I mean, there's so much serious stuff. I mean, if this were all passed, it would be quite transformative. I mean, it would it would be as big as the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson or uh, the New Deal of, of FDR. So, I mean, we're talking about a serious uh, redefining of the role of government in people's lives. Uh, but, but for instance, one of the things I want in it is immigration. And, and, and it, to pass reconciliation, there's something I don't want to get too far. It has to be germane. Rule, which basically says that, you know, the primary purpose of this has to be budgetary. Yes, everything that you do in government has some financial impact, but it can't be a, a policy change that has a, a, a bit of a financial impact. And to give you an example, when they tried as part of the COVID relief to pass an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, the Senate parliamentarian said, well, that isn't actually a budgetary thing. That's a, a different policy plan. And she stripped it from the plan. And as a result, when they passed the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief package, it didn't have that in it. And there's a lot of thought that, you know, that the Democrats know that she's going to strip it out of this plan, right. but then they can go back to the left wing of the party, yeah, the ALCs, and say, well, we tried. I think that's probably true, but I am 
still just sort of shaken by the dollar figure here, the dollar amount. You mentioned some of the Republicans who are on board with the bipartisan infrastructure plan. One of them is Mitt Romney, but even he was making noises about how insane in his mind, and I agree, $3.5 trillion is. That's roughly the size of the entire federal budget, everything spent by Uncle Sam in 2010, for instance. Uh, I remember all the way back, I'm old enough, Chris, that I remember the Obama stimulus debate, which was what, roughly... $800 $800 billion with a B? Yeah. This is $3.5 trillion with a T. And I, I know with the crisis and coronavirus, trillions of dollars have just been thrown around like candy. Nevertheless, a $3.5 trillion proposal that they might try to do alone on a partisan vote, I mean, it it is a breathtaking attempt at the very least. And it just it hasn't landed with the explosive detonation that I would have expected, given a lot of the the battles of the Obama era, are people just sort of resigned? Have they have numbers kind of lost meaning in the last few years? You know, I think I think we really have become kind of numb to it. You're exactly right. I mean, I think of that too. Remember, Obama comes in in the depths of the Great Recession in 2009, and they say, and you know, the economy was literally in serious shape then. And there, so there's talk about what are we going to do? We've, we've got to bail it out. And, and, you know, how much of a stimulus are we going to have? And everybody said, well, you can't go to a trillion dollars. That's just the red line. And as you say, they settled it around $800 billion, which was still, uh, a, you know, a god-awful amount Huge. of money. But they were able to get that through, and they stayed short of the trillion. But all, all of that trillion-dollar red line stuff went out the window during coronavirus. I mean, there were how many packages were passed that were more than a trillion dollars under Trump? And then he passed. Uh, a huge tax cut that was more than a trillion dollars. And then uh, Biden passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, the COVID relief plan, when he came in. So suddenly, the tr- a trillion dollars is kind of, you know, what you find under your cushion in Washington now uh, in pocket change. It, it, I but agree. Not, I but think, not really, though, right? I mean, the math is no, still the no, math. No, I'm talking about in terms of the way people are treating it. Right. And remember, the $3.5 trillion, the first reaction was, wow, that's... That's so little because uh, Bernie Sanders, the head of the uh, budget committee, he was talking about $6 trillion. So, you know, this is down from there, but it's up from what anybody could have imagined a short time ago. Joe Manchin, who's probably the most moderate Democrat in the Senate, he's on the record saying his number is between $1 and $2 trillion, and it all has to be completely, truly paid for. This is a trillion and a half bigger than the high end of his range. They say it's paid for, but a lot of the experts are saying, you know, let's, okay, let's see how. Uh, Again, I feel like all eyes are going to land on Joe Manchin and and sort of the way that I'm imagining this, one scenario where this could play out is they try to do the bipartisan infrastructure bill first, potentially, see if you can get Republican support for it, pass $600 billion of new spending on real infrastructure, Then Joe Manchin gets his win. Bipartisanship is alive and well. He says, look, I can't do 3.5. We got to strip this out. We got to strip that out. And they even if they land at 2.8 or something, it's still insane. And they might be able to get him on that size of a number. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, roughly, if you put it all together, three and a half trillion dollars of new spending with some bipartisan fingerprints on it. That's one scenario that I think is at least plausible, right? Absolutely. And three and a half trillion in new spending 
plus the $1.9 trillion in spending they had That's for right. the COVID relief plan. Don't plus plus the regular budget, just the $4 right. trillion so plus. But we're talking about $5 trillion in new spending by the so-called centrist moderate uh, Democrat in the field, Joe Biden. Yep. I mean, I think that you know, when people talk about what do you think of Joe Biden as president, I, I think the big surprise to me is that, you know, for all the talk about moderation and 36 years in the Senate and all of that, he is his ambition, is his goals. He really wants to be a transformative president in the footsteps of the two people I mentioned before, Lyndon Johnson and FDR. And Which, I don't uh, think anybody anticipated that. Well, including during voters. The campaign or the election. Yeah, voters, because he told them a very different story. The story in the election was, I'm the work together guy. I'm the unity guy. Trump is uniquely bad. We got to get past this as a country and heal. We can do this. We can work together again. I'm not scary. You know me. Let's just get rid of Trump. That is not the same thing as I want to be FDR and I want to spend five trillion. And there were a lot of Republicans, Chris. You remember the arguments, the Trojan horse argument. Joe Biden is what the Democrats, the vessel that they're going to use to get back in the White House. They're going to put on a happy, you know, non-scary face to swing voters. And if he gets in, it's going to be the hard left that's in control. And at least to some extent, that concern, in my view, has been vindicated so far. Well, uh, the only part of that that I disagree with is the idea that somehow uh, Biden is a kind of unwitting uh, stalking horse for this whole thing. I think that he's driving the train here. I don't think he's being pushed by Bernie Sanders or AOC or anybody else. I think it's turned out that he is a much more ambitious and, and frankly, much more liberal. <laughs> so you're saying he, mis- he, misrep- he misrepresented himself. He, he wasn't. I, I, I certainly don't think it's that he's being taken for a ride here. No. I mean, I was fortunate enough to spend an hour with him before his speech to Congress. They invited an anchor from each of the networks, and I was the Fox representative. Uh, this is a guy, I mean, you can like what he's doing or not like what he's doing, but he's he knows his brief, he knows what he wants, and he's pushing full speed ahead on it. I don't think he's anybody's patsy or, or, or stalking horse on any of this. You know, Chris, I want to switch subjects. It's so related to Biden, but it's actually in line with what we were just discussing and and what he's up to and the way that he's governing. Part of governing, of course, is rhetoric. And this was one of the big criticisms among some people of President Trump. Joe Biden has been at the drop of a hat labeling things Jim Crow left and right. The Georgia law is Jim Crow. The Texas law is Jim Crow. The filibuster is Jim Crow. I mean, he's he's really invoking that horrible chapter in our history pretty flippantly for political reasons, in my view, on a regular basis. And I was actually chatting with Carl Rove yesterday on the show, and Carl was making the point that many Republicans have that the voting laws in Delaware in many key respects are much more restrictive than they are even after the Georgia law was passed or if the Texas law were to pass more generous early voting, for example. There's been zero early voting in in Delaware for decades. That's finally going to change. There's there's other provisions as well. I haven't heard President Biden challenged by any journalists when he's out there just dropping the Jim Crow bomb all over the place over policies he doesn't like. Ask, you know, or have to answer the question about the system under which he was repeatedly elected in the state of Delaware. If, you know, Mr. President, if this is Jim Crow, how can you defend what happened in your own home state? I haven't even heard that question asked. 
it seems like a no-brainer to at least you know push him on that a little bit. Well, you know, if I ever get an interview with, <laughs> with Joe Biden, I'll be sure to, to include that in my list. You know, I, I think I think there are, are two aspects to the to these voting restrictions. One of them is is the context in which it happens, and, and that is that you know it comes in the aftermath of of what I believe is the big lie uh, by. Donald Trump, that the election was stolen from him, that there was rampant fraud, and that if all of the fraud had been cleaned up, that he would have won. I don't believe that for a second. I agree with you. And there hasn't been any proof of that. So, you know, a lot of these laws happen in in that context, and they happen, you know, in, in the wake of those allegations. And having said, so that's one aspect of it. And I think that that raises concerns. On the other hand, then you have to get to the actual changes that are being made. And for for instance, you know, voting ID. Uh, I I just don't see how you can you, you can I can you can make an argument. It's harder on black people than whatever. But there's certainly no way that that in any way equates with Jim Crow or it's any kind of racist thing. It's it's race neutral. Uh, people have enough access, even, you know, if you don't have a driver's license, uh, you can have free access to a voter ID card in a number of these states. I don't think that's in any way, shape or form anything other than trying to make yeah. elections. Uh, and also, they're, and, they're and, expanding in, in a lot of these cases, Georgia and Texas, they're actually expanding voting hours, early voting right. hours, uh, but, certainly but, but, well beyond what they have in a place like Delaware. Chris, just briefly, one thing I want to interject, your point about the context, I think, is... Uh, is right. I agree with it. I think part of the context as well for Republicans and conservatives like myself who don't believe the big lie, we did see a lot of major emergency changes made to how we ran the election in 20 because of a pandemic. And I think that there are people with reasonable concerns about, okay, are we going to now institutionalize permanently some of these measures that were supposed to be only for this, you know, once in a generation, once in a lifetime emergency? I think cleaning some of that up and going shifting back to normal is a part of the context here that is perhaps less sinister. That's just one no, point that I, I wanted to I, make. I, I No, I agree with that. Uh, on the other hand, I, I interviewed Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, last week on Fox News Sunday. And, you know, two of the changes that they're doing in Texas, one of them is Harris County in Houston uh, instituted for a period of time, not the entire uh, pr- early voting period, 24-hour voting, drive-through voting. And when I asked uh, the governor, why, why are you taking that out? That would, you know, that people have to show up in person and show an ID to vote. Uh, he said, well, yeah, but there might be somebody in the car who could influence their vote. I find that doesn't pass the, 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 the smell test. That that strikes me, particularly when it happens in Harris County, where more than half the people who voted were African-American. Uh, but I, I mean, if, if you're trying, if you're saying literally, and that is the comparison that Biden is making, comparing it to Jim Crow, I'm old enough to have lived in the 50s and 60s when people had to guess how many marbles were in a huge jar, or how many bubbles were in a bar of soap, literally, to be able to register. No, this isn't even close to that. Yeah, well, he says it's worse. He calls it Jim Crow on steroids. I mean, it's just such an incredibly reckless, ahistorical thing to say. And there's an obvious counterpoint, not just the one that you just made, but his own home state. By his definition, it must be, you know, Jim Crow 3.0 in Delaware. No one's asked him the question. Maybe you will if they ever grant you a one-on-one, which I hope they do. Chris, very quickly, uh, 30 seconds, the show this weekend, what's on tap? 
Well, we're going to be talking to the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. A lot going on, uh, you know, the huge spike in cases. And in addition, uh, you know, you've got the Facebook question. And then we're also going to talk to Bill Cassidy, Senator from Louisiana, about he's part of the bipartisan Republican group on infrastructure. All of that on Fox News Sunday. Hosted, as always, by Chris Wallace. Our guest here will be watching. Check your local listings. Chris, always appreciate it. Have a good show. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Kat Timp will be here in studio coming up to start our next hour. So there's some breaking news. The government has put out their official stats for the month of June at the southern border. This is from Customs and Border Protection, CBP. Surprise, surprise. The border crisis that the White House denies. They will not call it a crisis. They have said the border is secure. The border is closed. Yet again, illegal border crossings were up in June. 188,000 illegal immigrants were detained at the southern border in June. 188,000. That's up from May. The crisis is not getting better. It is getting worse. A crisis they won't even admit. And by the way, that number... 188,000 does not include any of the tens of thousands who got away, people who weren't captured. These are just people who were detained. 188,000 in June alone. They are failing so badly at the border and they don't seem to care. It's just outrageous. It can't continue this way. And yet on and on it goes. Next hour of the Guy Benson show coming right up. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Middle hour on this Friday. Happy Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website. Podcast is free every day. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. The Dow closes down almost 300 points. 299. Close the week at 34,687. After a couple good days, not a great day today. Well, joining me here in studio as we begin our middle hour of three is our friend Kat Timp, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld! Point, which I had the pleasure of being a part of on Wednesday night, also co-host of the podcast Tyrus and Timp. It is Kat Timp, and hello to you, Kat. Hey, hello, hi. You came blowing into this <laughs> yeah, studio during the break <laughs> in a way that was almost violent. Yeah, well, I'm on steroids, um, sinus problem, getting a little little surgery on Tuesday, just like a little touch of surgery, nothing too serious, outpatient, I'll be off for a couple of days. But steroids, like, I do not need this. 
you know, like I need it for the sinus symptoms. Right. But None of the I'm not somebody who um, needs pharmaceutical assistance in becoming overhyped. <laughs> like, if anything, it's too much energy. Like, when I first take it in the morning, for, like, those couple hours in the morning, I am inconsolably anxious. And uh, But then I just ride through with the sign, you know, it helps the inflammation, but it's it's just too much energy. Yeah, you, you came in seeming like you might be like on cocaine. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I don't understand how people, people do steroids, rec- I was saying this to Greg, I'm like, I don't understand how people do this recreationally. Like, how, steroids for fun? Are you kidding me? This is not fun. I want to calm down. I would like to calm down, please. <laughs> well, uh, and you're like, where's the coffee? Where's my Yeah, joy? and I also want a coffee. I've been vaping nicotine all day. But that is neither here nor there. Yeah. I mean, I was in my office yesterday. I was crying and then I was just laughing because it was, it, was, it was kind of funny that I was crying. Yeah. And I was like, man, Martha's like, next door has no idea it's like full-on girl interrupted in here right now one thousand percent martha mccallum is just getting ready for the story yeah and i'm like and you're you're belly laughing as you weep as i weep yeah it's a it's a one heck of a combo yeah with the with the tears and the laughter it's i i mean it's not bad emotional intensity is is um quite the thrill but i mean i i achieve that naturally You, you came into the studio uh, like the door like blows open. You, I'm not sure if you actually did this, but I imagine that you like kicked into the air. Yeah, I did. And the first thing you said to me was, I have a straw. Yeah. And oh, I that's said, true. That doesn't add do much for the cocaine thing. No. It I, is wrapped, I, America. Yeah. It is wrapped straw. That is true. She's holding it up for the camera. I, I can vouch. Yeah. That that straw is wrapped. Yeah. Okay, so do we want to talk politics or do we want to talk about your steroids? We can do whatever you, we want. You are like almost shaking right I, now. I, my leg is going crazy under the table. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. Uh, you're ready. You're ready for this surgery to happen. I can't wait for the surgery. I, I can't wait to breathe. It's been so bad. Um, yeah, so what happened here? I got a sinus surgery done when I was in college. And so, like, I've been having bad, because I was having bad sinus problems, whatever, and then it helped for a little bit, and things started getting bad again, and I like, was on antibiotic after antibiotic, but it wasn't getting better, it wasn't getting better. I emailed Dr. Siegel and was like, I'm in, I'm miserable, I can't breathe, I don't know what to do. So he introduced me to a specialist. He's amazing, He's by amazing. The way. He, he didn't he have like to help me out. Everyone. He emailed me back right away. I had a neck thing once, and he's just like, I get, my, my wife does exactly that. Yeah. You're in today. Yeah. Like, wow. And then the next day I had like a Zoom appointment with this, uh, and this was a Friday with an amazing sinus specialist. And um, then I got a CT scan on the next day, which was a Saturday. And it showed that, and I mentioned that I'd had surgery, but I didn't give any details. And the doctor was like, okay, so did you have this surgery? And they did it this way. And they did this. And, and I, I was like, yes. And he was like, well, they don't do that anymore because this hap- it's been happening to people years down the road. So it's like scar tissue. So they knew yeah. based on your symptoms. Based on my scan. They figured out that you had had a certain procedure years ago. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we've abandoned that procedure because of exactly this Exactly what happened having. to me. So it's like there's oh. scar tissue all up in my sinuses. So there's like all these little pockets. And it's that's why I can't breathe. Um and so do you have to breathe through your mouth? How does like does it feel like I can breathe a little through my nose, but I'm mostly a mouth breather these days, to be honest with you. <laughs> I can't. Uh, but they're going to it's it's like they don't even it's not going to cut my face. They're just going to go up in my nostrils and like clean it all out. Um, but it so was, there's there's no incision or anything. No, there's okay, no that, incision. That's good news. So I just, does, it, I, does it feel because you were saying when we were talking about this the other day when I saw you. Yeah. Gut field, you're like, it feels like it's sloshing yes. around so in your head. It was sinus pain, pressure, and, and it felt like there was, the best way I could describe it, like there's a waterbed between my ears. 
Like it's sloshing. Mm. It's, it's disgusting. It's awful. And it's, I'm in so much. And, and so I had like my consultation on the phone with, uh, the doctor and they were like, you know, no water or food after midnight. They were surgery. And then they were, and then they were like the list of things I have to tell everybody. And on that list is don't use cocaine. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Because the only reason that they have to say that is because somebody Wait, did it. Did you say that in protest? Yeah. Are you no, kidding yeah. me? I have well, to I stop just, my cocaine I, I just, usage? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, naive. I don't think I'm naive. I don't think anyone would describe me as naive. I feel that like if you are getting to a point in your life where your sinus issues can only be solved with surgical intervention. Yeah. The last thing you'd be thinking about would be that. But the only reason it's like on the list of things they tell you is because apparently I'm someone's, wrong. Someone's apparently I'm wrong. Yeah, it's, it's happened. <laughs> See, on this show, typically, when we talk about sloshing, it involves Mama's Juice and producer Christine. Mm. When we talk about cocaine, it's cocaine Mitch McConnell. Mm. But we're just blowing through all of that here. No pun intended. Oh, oh my gosh. Steroids, man. Like, I... This is fun for people. I don't understand that. I like. I need to go home and start drinking. You know what I'm concerned about, Cat, is when people listen to the podcast later. Some people to get through it faster. They put it on like double time. I'm not sure they'll be able to understand you. They won't be able to. Understand it me. sounds like you're already in fast forward mode. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I speak like I'm a high energy person naturally. That is correct. I am <laughs> a like I, I I am a fast talker naturally. That's I do right. not need pharmaceutical intervention. Um, it, maybe a downer would do me some good every right. now and then, but you Hence know the booze. Heads, yeah, that's why I'm going to go home and I'm like I'm going to need to have wine. All right, well I'll I'll join you. Yeah, come on through. How about that? Um, let's talk a little bit about politics. Sure. So as to avoid, I believe, what would be our fourth or fifth mention of cocaine just in this segment alone. Uh, have you been following this Texas Democrats thing and yeah. the little field trip to Washington with the beer and the yeah. private jets and all that? I understand. It's a political stunt. Fine. They know it's not going to ultimately succeed. But I read a quote yesterday from one of them saying – this is such a sacrifice. People have been crying. Uh, Someone postponed their wedding. Uh, Someone didn't go to a funeral for a loved one. I'm like, can you imagine missing your own wedding or a funeral based on a lie that this is some yeah. Jim Crow thing that you have to do for democracy? It, like the the crying and the histrionics. And they also want us to be like, wow, what heroes? And they keep everyone calling, oh, they're so brave. Look at how brave they are. They're like, here I am bravely eating a salad. Look at a photo. Here I am bravely washing my own clothes in the sink at my hotel room. Right. They're sharing every element of this on social media and they want to raise money. They want to be considered heroes. They want to make it feel like the the lie that they're telling about this bill justifies all of it. Right. And yet it's there's no sacrifice here. They went on a private jet. They're staying in a nice hotel. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. I, if I was that dead person that had that funeral, I would cr- be crawling out of my grave to haunt whoever it was that missed my funeral, oh. which I plan to do anyway with whoever does miss my funeral. But then this oh. this would Note at least be justified. Yeah, make sure you go. Uh, and I will also be keeping track from the at, from beyond the grave of who posts me uh, on their story, the RIP story versus uh, posting me on the main. So I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, if you if we had a relationship where I believe that I deserved a hard post and you just do a story. I mean, I was at your haunt- you were at my wedding. I was wedding. at your wedding. So, I, so you need you a need full post. you need to do post. a hard post, yeah. The full Instagram post. It would be like a photo of us together. Yeah, a photo of us together. And, and like happier spend times. some time on that caption. 
Yeah, the caption. I'm going to need you to spend some time right? on that caption. Thoughtful. Yes. I'm, I'm, making a, I'm making a list just in case the surgery doesn't go well. I'm just making a list. Yeah, that's true. I am, I am getting surgery. Although, here's, here's the other thing, though. Might I want to be haunted by you? That could, you I, could be a fun ghost. That's true. I will come back and I will party with people who posted me on the main. But if we're like not close and we used to be close and you post me on the main like we were close, I will haunt you even harder for that. <laughs> it's Friday night. You should drink some booze. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, like I, that? I'll influence everyone's decisions from beyond I, the grave. I came up with that booze and boo joke. That was that was great. That in was real excellent. time in my own head. That was excellent. Thank Every, you. But they're all they're being so dramatic. Uh, it, it's like it, saying you know like if you they're basically repealing stuff that was COVID measures and they actually increase early voting. That's right. And they're like women aren't going to be able to vote and it's like I saw someone say that I'm like well okay what have I been doing? Yeah. No. <laughs> no then there were photos of that exact lawmaker voting. She's yeah. posted selfies of her voting and she's like it's. It's also ridiculous. I don't know who they think they're actually fooling or persuading, but it's it is the ultimate high dollar virtue signal. Mm-hmm. And they're getting applause from certain folks, and uh, most people I think are rolling their eyes. Last subject, very different. I saw this and I laughed out loud. New York Post headline: Shark advocates. I don't even know what that is. Yes, shark advocates are calling for rebranding attacks, shark attacks. They want to call them interactions. Yeah. We have less than a minute, but I assume you have thoughts. Yeah, we talked about this in Gutfeld. I, I I don't know why there are shark I like I do I do the sharks care? That's my thought. Like no. do the sharks they're not trying to build by careers di- as influencers. Like they're not trying to get sponsored by Revolve. Who cares what we think of them? And they're dead behind the eyes. Sharks by definition don't care. No, they don't care. They just eat something that they think is a seal. Yeah. And it like I don't. I don't think there's like a lot of hate out there. Like it, it, it's. It's. I don't think it's that serious. I don't think that they care. I think they're doing fine. Like if you're swimming, you're at the beach, you're on Cape Cod. This great white's got your leg, and you're like, "Help! I'm being interacted yeah, with." Yeah, I'm not going to be concerned about the branding of that attack <laughs> for the shark. Okay, you need to go like take a nap or something. Yeah, I don't I'm know. concerned for you, but also delighted. But that's to why see I want to have coffee because I'm like, let's see what we do if we add some more. We're going to take a break. <laughs> it's the Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for listening. So here's a story out of Boston. (laughs) We talked about here in New York City how there was a huge fight about Pride and Pride Month and the Pride organization because they explicitly excluded NYPD. And there was a huge battle royale within their organization. It got very, very ugly. We also told you, and I'm going to bring these two together in just a second, about one of the spinoff groups of Greta Thunberg's environmental organization, you know, this climate activist, Greta Thunberg, the Scandinavian teenager. One of her satellite organizations or a chapter of her group disbanded recently, just quit. They got rid of their entire group because of their systemic racism. This is how insane this woke stuff gets. These kids have been told that everything's all racist and it's white supremacy and all, you know, everything, all the buzzwords. 
And they apparently felt so guilty about all of it that they decided they were unworthy of existence. So because of their apparent white supremacy, they disbanded, which I think is hilarious. And I encouraged all left-wing groups to think deeply about their complicity in white supremacy and to also disband. I would like every left-wing group to disband if they are truly committed to racial equity. So along those lines, and this story really could come right out of Woke Tales. In fact, we've got Woke Tales coming up in the next segment on a completely different subject, although it all kind of ties together, intersectionality and all that. You know what? Let's just do Woke Tales Extended. It's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Boston Pride, the LGBTQIA+, organizing group in the city of Boston. They do parades and other events. They have disbanded. They have dissolved and disbanded their organization in Boston. Why? Because of their own systemic racism, according to them. The revolution eats its own. What I kind of like about being a conservative, many things, but one of them is I don't play along with any of this BS. I'm not saying that I'm uncancelable. I'm sure there are things I could do that would get myself canceled, you know, try to be careful and thoughtful. But like, I would never go along with anything like this. The only people who would do something as dramatic and radical as canceling themselves are people who are steeped and immersed in this stew of hardcore leftism. So Boston Pride, run by a bunch of LGBT activists, put out a statement. Quote, for years we have volunteered our time with Boston Pride because we care about and are passionate about the LGBTQIA plus community. We strive to foster an environment of diversity and unity within our organization and the community. Over the past 50 years, Boston Pride has facilitated programs and events that have changed our society and promoted equality, but we know there is still work to be done. It is clear to us that our community needs and wants change without the involvement of Boston Pride. We have heard the concerns of the QTBIPOC community. So just if you're keeping score at home, we've got the LGBTQIA plus community reacting to concerns of the QTBIPOC community. It is clear that our community needs and wants change without the involvement of Boston Pride. We have heard the concerns of the QTBIPOC community and others. We care too much to stand in the way. I love that. We just care too much. Therefore, Boston Pride is dissolving. There will be no further events or programming planned, and the board is taking steps to close down the organization. Apparently, they were accused of being trans-exclusionary and not diverse enough. So they had... Within the activists, even more hardcore activists agitating and activisming against the agitating activists. And they decided that their solution to all of it was Boston Pride over 50 years and all of their programming and parades and everything. It's over. It's dissolved, disbanded, shut down. Congratulations on this amazing step towards progress or whatever, Boston Pride. 
I don't know what the hell you're doing. You are so far up your own. You're lost. I think it's on some level sad for a bunch of just normal average LGBT people who like to have these events. But when you go down this rabbit hole, people are robbed of any sense of proportion. Their minds are lost. And this is the result. Rather than saying, oh, you know, let's maybe do this event or we can include this person on the board. No, the supremacy is so systemic. It's so endemic. And they care just so much that Boston Pride is gone. I'd almost have more respect if they just said, you know what? It's too much work. We're tired of it. We just want to go take a nap. So we're done here. But no, it's because they care so much. Disbanded forever, apparently. Can you smell the equity in the air? It's been quite a run, Boston Pride. Adios, I guess. I wonder if these people ever wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and deep down say to themselves, of all the drama and all of this absurdity, I'm addicted to you, but you know that you're toxic. Hashtag free Britney. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the program on this Friday in New York City. Glad to have you here. I'm Guy Benson. And because it's Friday and because I'm feeling it and because there is a never ending source of these stories, it is time once again for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. This comes to us via Barry Weiss, as is so often the case, although quite a few people are writing and talking about this. There's an author named Abigail Schreier. And she wrote a book about a controversial, difficult subject. She did it not as a polemic, but as an academic exercise. The subject matter is transgender children, gender dysphoria, and related issues. And for obvious reasons, these are sensitive. Abigail Schreier's book has been targeted as basically a hate crime unto itself for asking serious questions and looking into perhaps a side of this issue that some activists object to. I mean, not perhaps, they obviously do. And they don't want anyone to even talk about it or discuss it or debate it. I was actually pretty proud of 60 Minutes recently, even though I've been very critical of 60 Minutes based on their hatchet job, their embarrassing affront to journalism with Ron DeSantis and the fake scandal they tried to recycle and cook up down in Florida, they actually, I think, took a brave step on that show by addressing part of this broad issue by examining some of the people, mainly younger people, who transitioned, decided that they were trans, went through the process of transitioning, and then regretted it and wanted to go back. And it's not an insubstantial number. And part of our public debate now is, what should the policy be involving children, young children, who believe that they are not their birth gender or their biological sex at birth does not accurately reflect their identity, their gender identity? What role should parents have? What role should the state have? 
And activists on the hard left, hardcore trans activists, will say there is only one thing to say here, basically, which is full affirmation no matter what or you're a bigot. And I think that almost everyone else can agree it cannot be that simple. So Abigail Schreier endeavored to look into some of this and explore it in this cerebral, thoughtful way. Her piece is called The Books Are Already Burning. And here's what she writes. This is the author of this book that has been targeted over and over again for banning, for burning. Quote, 146 people in Halifax, Nova Scotia, wait on a list to borrow a library book. A question hangs over them. Will activists let them read it? The book is mine. Irreversible damage. And it is an investigation of a medical mystery. Why is the number of teenage girls requesting and obtaining gender reassignment skyrocketing in the United States, Canada, Scandinavia, and Europe? In Great Britain, it's up 4,400% over the last decade. Though it shouldn't be, this has become a highly controversial area of inquiry. The book is an exploration of why so many girls would, in such a short time frame, decide they are transgender. And it raises questions about whether they're getting appropriate medical treatment. The book is not about whether trans people exist. They do. And it is not about adults who elect to medically transition genders. As I have stated endlessly in public interviews and in Senate testimony, I fully support medical transition for mature adults and believe that transgender individuals should live openly without fear or stigma. So let me just pause for a second. Obviously, this woman is being smeared by a lot of people as anti-trans or a bigot. That paragraph that I just read, does that sound like the words? Does that sound like something that a bigot would say or believe? She says trans people exist. Adults should be able to make these decisions for themselves. People who are transgender should live openly without fear or stigma. That is actually quite progressive, I would say, especially in the arc of recent history when it comes to these issues. But because she's asking questions about children making decisions before their brains are fully formed, questioning why has been there this questioning why has there been this massive spike in children requesting gender reassignment surgeries? Apparently, these are questions that you're not supposed to ask and certainly not supposed to answer in a way other than because they are transgender and this is their true self and we need to support them completely and reflexively. She goes on in this piece where she's talking about books being burned effectively. It's modern day book burning. Since publication, I have faced fierce opposition, not just to the ideas presented, challenged or explored, But to the publication of the book itself, this is what really gets to me. A top lawyer for the ACLU, the civil liberties crowd supposedly, called for the book to be banned. Powerful organizations like GLAAD have lobbied against it and pressured corporations, Target and Amazon, among others, to remove irreversible damage from their virtual shelves. Don't sell it. There's a pattern to such censorship campaigns. A fresh example presented itself this past week at Science-Based Medicine, which bills itself as a group blog exploring issues and controversies and the relationship between science and medicine. 
On Tuesday, one of the blog's longtime contributors, Dr. Harriet Hall, a family physician, a flight surgeon in the Air Force with dozens of publications to her name, posted a favorable review of my book. She examined the scientific claims, as well as the medical ones, and wrote that the book, quote, combines well-researched facts with horrifying stories about botched surgeries, people who later regret their choices, and therapists who are not providing therapy but just validating their patient's self-diagnosis. Dr. Hall not only shared my criticisms of affirmative care, that is, immediately agreeing with a teen's self-diagnosis of gender dysphoria and proceeding to hormones and surgeries, but also noted that many physicians and therapists feel the same way but are afraid to say so. Okay, so this well-respected person writes a favorable review about a controversial book, and then what happens? Back to the piece from Schreier. Within a day, Dr. Hall's article was flooded with nearly 1,000 comments, mostly, she says, from activists demanding the article be stripped from the site, but also some readers expressing their appreciation. Angry emails from activists swamped the blog's editors. Within two days, those editors gave Dr. Hall an ultimatum, retract, rewrite, or allow them to add a disclaimer. Schreier says, let this sink in. A book review by a respected physician was bullied out of existence in America because the piece was retracted. This doctor told the editors, no, I don't want it retracted, and they did it anyway. So you have activists demanding that a book be banned and not sold. We're not talking about forcing people to read it in school, right, thinking about the critical race theory controversy. This is can adults in the United States of America buy a book and can someone write a positive review of said book if it touches a difficult issue where there are obviously differences of opinion, but it goes against the orthodoxy of a very radical group of activists? And what we are learning, especially in areas where woke people run the show, the answer seems to be no, they don't want people to even have access to this book, to make a choice as adults to purchase some written words and read them. This is extremely illiberal. I know a lot of the time sort of traditionalists or hardcore right-wingers or religious fundamentalists, they're the ones who are portrayed as book burners, these close-minded fanatics. The modern-day version of that is the woke crowd, where not only do they want to enforce a mindset, they don't want to really have to go through the process of having a debate, a serious conversation, treating nuance in a nuanced way, persuading people. Here's why we think that this author is wrong. Abigail Schreier misses this, that, or the other. They don't want to engage in that discussion because that discussion is problematic, right? Such conversations are violence. We'll get to that word again in just a moment. And so they're doing exactly what Mary Catherine Hamm and I wrote about years ago in our book, End of Discussion. They are trying to prevent the debate from happening. They want to win the debate by disqualifying the other side. This book should not be allowed to be purchased. They're pressuring companies not to sell it. 
They're pressuring libraries not to carry it. I guess this library in Canada offered to include an insert in the book for people who checked it out that would also have trans-affirming options for them to go read. Oh, go read this book. Here's a website. Not good enough for the activists. They want Ms. Schreier's work, her research, her book, banned. And it's actually pretty frightening. I have not read the book. This is not an issue that I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about. I think that trans people should be treated with dignity. Think of the golden rule. Do unto others. They certainly should not be victimized by violence or bigotry. I think we can all agree on that. What happens when a child decides or says that they're trans? What should happen next? I don't think the book is closed on that, so to speak. I think that's very much an open conversation, a tricky one. And there are plenty of examples out there of people who thought they wanted something at a young age and then realized, having made irreversible choices, that it was a huge mistake. Are we to ignore and silence those people? Are we to erase that lived experience? Are we not allowed to talk about that at all? And you can think it's backwards. You can think that it's antediluvian. You can think that it actually is a soft form of anti-trans bigotry. Let's just say for the sake of argument, it's bigotry. I don't agree with that, but just for this conversation, let's just say it's bigotry. In a free country, in the United States of America, you should still be able to buy and access a bigoted book. Now, of course, they're defining down bigotry everywhere to anything that they don't like or don't want to have to grapple with. And the solution isn't to publish another book that makes a counter argument and maybe challenge Abigail Schreier to a series of debates across the country where they can hash things out and let people make decisions. That, of course, is not what they're doing. What they're doing is saying this woman is evil. What she's doing is evil. You must not allow this book to be accessed by people. There's a booksellers association of independent bookstores that apparently inadvertently or unknowingly or they didn't recognize the whirlwind that was going to come. But they, in one of their newsletters or email blasts, included this book, Irreversible Damage, as an option that people could buy. Like it was promoted in some way. This activist class, and again, it's a very small number of people, but they are fanatically devoted to it, and they are going to swamp anyone who disagrees. They clearly bombarded this association with irate messages, and the American Booksellers Association issued a groveling apology, saying that promoting the book was, quote, a serious, violent incident. That goes against our policies, values, and everything we believe and support. It is inexcusable. Then, of course, they did the ritual vowing to do the work and all this other stuff. They said linking, basically, to this book, letting people know that it was for sale, is an act of violence. It's incredible the way that that word is being abused and redefined on the left. Actual violence and rioting and looting and all that, they say, no, that's just a protest. And who are you to condemn it? We have to understand the rage. So real violence is speech. 
speech, books, that's the true violence. I mean, it's just completely through the looking glass. It's, it's just funhouse mirrors everywhere you turn within woke world. Charlie Sykes writes this about this whole issue. And we can set aside all of our agreements and disagreements about trans issues and all of the related questions. Fundamentally, this is about free speech, free expression, and anti-illiberalism. Here's his quote. If you are offended by a book, one, don't buy it. Two, don't read it. Or three, make an effort to correct or refute it. Don't burn it. And the modern-day version of burning a book is what's happening to this book and this woman. And I think it's illustrative of a broader, very alarming, hyper-woke, anti-freedom movement in the West. A few more small woke tales examples to get to as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Thanks for listening. Just a few more odds and ends in the Woke Tales file today. Here's one. Here's just a headline and subheadline from The Atlantic. The hidden bigotry of crosswords. Ooh. The popular puzzles are largely written and edited by older white men who dictate what makes it into the grid and what is kept out. So I regret to inform you, ladies and gentlemen, that crossword puzzles are problematic. Too many white, older men involved in the process. We need some young trans women of color writing crossword puzzles, apparently. So if you enjoy a Sunday crossword puzzle, and you know this has to be so disappointing and scary to New York Times subscribers, especially those who cherish their Sunday tea and that crossword puzzle, are they participating in white supremacy? That's a question that they have to live with. Isn't this exhausting? Isn't this exhausting? What about the bigotry of certain products or industries that are overwhelmingly run by people of color? That's, that's good. I mean, I can't keep up with what the rules even are. But you are meant to feel bad about everything all the time, and everything boils down to race. It's miserable. Who wants to live their life this way? And yet a lot of people are trying to insist that we all do. No, thank you. Then I saw this in the Boston Globe. Ben and Jerry's, delicious ice cream made by pinko socialists up in Vermont. I eat it because it's really good. I don't care for their politics at all. They're now under fire from lefty activists. And they've gone dark on their social media for a while. And people are saying, well, you're not speaking up enough. And are you trying to avoid a controversy about where their product is sold in Israel from people who hate Israel? So their silence is drawing attention because, let's not forget, silence is violence. Israel is a problem. And on and on it goes. Books, crossword puzzles, ice cream, nothing is safe from these people. And thus concludes Woke Tales for the day. 
Our final hour coming up next. Something a little different when we come back. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Friday. I'm Guy Benson. I'm so glad you're listening. Thank you. Bonus Benson on the free podcast arrives tomorrow and Sunday if you just can't get enough. But we are in our final hour of the broadcast week from New York City today. And as I said, I'm just delighted that you're here. Hope you enjoyed Kennedy last night. I'll be filling in for her again on Monday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free, on demand, no charge, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your free podcasts. And we've been growing, and that's thanks to you. Our appreciation is boundless, but let's keep it going. Let's keep it rolling. Let's keep growing together. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It is really good. In fact, it's widely available here in New York City. I might go seek some out later this evening, as a matter of fact. TheLongDrink.com is their website. It is refreshing. It is hot as hell in this city. And just the steaminess. I can see why people sort of flee Manhattan in the summer if they can. But to cut through the humidity and the temperature-related misery, a nice cold long drink sounds great. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you, or you can also order online. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. And as we begin this final hour of the broadcast week, I am thrilled to welcome back to the show my friend, Kelly Maher. She is a longtime friend. We met at Mary Catherine Ham's wedding years ago, and we instantly hit it off. I think the friendship was, in fact, cemented when we got down. So the wedding was at a lake, and they had rented a bunch of houses around the lake for guests. And we were put – we were like the island of misfit toys in this house where – They're like, all right, we're not sure where to put these people, so let's just put them all together. So the night before the wedding, we all had far too much wine. And the next morning, I woke up, not in my greatest shape, let's put it that way. And I remember feeling groggy and a little miserable. I'm like, oh, gosh, there's this wedding tonight. What did I do? This was stupid. And then I smelled a wonderful smell, wafting down the hallway to this guest room where I was sleeping. It was coming from the kitchen. Kelly, who had had, I would say, just as much wine as I did, she had nevertheless gotten up early, driven to a grocery store, purchased all the ingredients for an elaborate breakfast, and then cooked said breakfast for everyone in the house. Eggs, bacon, it was just all the bells and whistles. I remember thinking, this woman is magic. And we've been friends ever since, And there's a reason that we have her on, and we have been checking in with her over the last year. If you're a regular listener, you will recall this. If you are new, as many of you are, you will have no idea what I'm talking about, so we'll get you up to speed. 
I just think it's interesting from time to time to go off the beaten path, especially on a Friday in the happy hour. It's all politics all the time. It can get to be a lot. Let's talk about something totally different. And so with all that said, it is my pleasure to welcome back to The Guy Benson Show, the great Kelly Maher. Hey, Kelly. Hi, love. How are you? I'm doing very well. So you've got a website, realbestlife.com, realbestlife.com. You created for yourself a challenge called the hashtag homegrown year. And there are rules. One of our mutual friends, Emily, is like the commissioner of all of these rules. You are now on the home stretch, as we like to say, of this challenge, which dates back to last summer for the non-initiated. Can you just briefly explain what is homegrown year? Yeah, the homegrown year is a challenge actually that was conceived of at your wedding. Um, So we have a wedding theme today and I was there with our mutual friend, Emily, and it was a a beautiful wedding. All of the food was fabulous. And I, at that wedding, probably got a little bit overserved. And so every time a meal would come out, I would say, oh, you know, this is good, but I grow something better or I make cheese that is better because um, I live on a small urban farm just north of Denver, Colorado. And I, I got maybe a little obnoxious. And finally, Emily looked at me and said, well, why don't you see if you can live off of your farm for a year? Yeah, if it's so great. And then, yeah, and now I'm almost done. Now, fast forward to now, I have So you did it. Lived Right. So yeah, she well, she throws down this gauntlet like she's like, OK, yeah. oh, if you can do everything so much better with your special food that you grow, why don't you actually do it? And then yep. it happened. So you <laughs> could what, what were the rules? Like, what were you allowed to do? What weren't you allowed to do? What have you been putting yourself through for what is it now, like 11 months? Yeah, 11 and a half months. I end uh, the last day will be the 31st of July oh and then I will gosh. have lived off of our farm almost entirely for a year. Things I'm allowed are anything we grow here, anything produced by our animals. I have chickens and ducks and guinea fowl, and I have goats. So I have dairy. So any of the dairy that you can think of, I pretty much make. I make my own cheese. Uh, I had a pig. Um, She's now in the freezer and delicious. Sorry, not sorry. I'm not a vegan uh, and wasn't going to be. And then everything that my husband and I both hunt and fish, anything that we hunt or fish, um, anything. So, so that, But that doesn't have to be on your property. You can hunt or fish correct. elsewhere in nature. Correct. But if you catch yeah. it or kill it, you can eat it. Correct. And then uh, there is a bartering provision for things that I can't create here. I can barter with people who are the sources. The people who grow the things or create the things, I can barter. Um, primarily, I have been bartering with cheese. Thank you very much for your listeners and your radio show. One of your listeners has a company in Hawaii called Island X Coffee, and they bartered with me for coffee, which is the only way I've survived. And you sent cheese. And by the way, this is one of my favorite things about this entire experience you came on this show to roll it out. You're like, here's what I'm doing. It's realbestlife.com. I'm doing the homegrown year. This is the concept. And you were really worried about, or this is early days, you were stressing about coffee. And a listener to the Guy Benson show found you 
and you yep. guys set up a bona fide barter where you sent them cheese, they sent yeah. you coffee, and it's worked out rather well because you have not completely lost your mind. True. However, I do have, However. I think, like 26 coffee beans left for the next 15 days, not that I'm counting, but I am, like, <laughs> grinding it basically into powder, almost. I haven't snorted a coffee bean yet, but I oh, might, no. because I have a... Desperation. I have, well, I have an almost two-year-old and a four-year-old, so... They are not subjected they, to this, right? It's only you. They are, they are not subjected to this, but they are subjected to my lack of caffeine. So it was almost a month in, I think, that we <laughs> bartered for the coffee, and I went for the first month, and, guy, I was hurting. Like, the first few days of this, I had gone from... And I don't know other moms and dads who are listening if you do this, but my kids eat garbage, like, neon orange mac and cheese type food and then i would just eat the rest right so i would just so i was eating really probably a more highly processed diet than i ever had in my entire life and i went from that to basically straight zucchini at that point we hadn't uh didn't have a deer had my pigs were alive (laughs) so i went basically from highly processed to vegetarian, no caffeine, no alcohol. And the first, yeah, the first couple weeks were rough. Yeah, no, you were like, you were texting, you're like, what have I done? But, but you know, you adjusted. I'm 82 pounds lighter. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like I lost both of my kids. But are you like, are you healthy 82 pounds lighter? Is your doctor like, this is good? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, I, it's the first time in my life and guy, we've been friends for a long time and I've, I've always kind of struggled with diets and, and this is the first time I really don't feel, I don't feel like it's a diet. I don't feel restricted, which I know sounds really bizarre, but it's not, it's not like I have a cheat meal. I had one of my cheat meals with you and I think, oh no. Well, by the way, let's explain that. You were allowed four cheat meals, not days, individual meals. So like an elaborate dinner four times over the entire year. I had lobbied the commissioner, Commissioner Emily, for one cheat meal a month. And she said, absolutely not. We're going to do once a quarter. And that is the absolute maximum. How many cheat meals are you in now? Are you, have you used them all up? I have. I've used all four. I used the first one was Christmas. The second one, I flew to DC and had it with you. We made uh, everything for you. We we cooked. We ordered so sushi. Good. We gave like every possible thing we could think of that you were craving. It I was finally really fun. like like a a Roman heading to the vomitorium. I finally had to go lay on your couch because I couldn't. <laughs> You're like I give up. <laughs> White flag <laughs> is being waved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then you had two um, more. Yeah, and then the third one, actually, this is going to sound bizarre, but I, I used it on a single shot of tequila. Um, what? Uh, I know. You I know. used a so cheat I, meal for one shot of tequila? I did. I did. So you'll remember as, as a I friend of mine. judging you. About a year ago, my sister-in-law died of breast cancer. Uh, really young, you know. Are you going to make me feel bad now for judging you? I yeah, think you I are. Go on, out. go on. I deserve it. <laughs> and on the first anniversary of her death, uh, my brother-in-law came in to the house. We were up at, at a big family gathering up at the farm in Nebraska. And he came in and, you know, with tears in his eyes said, 
I want to do a family shot in memory of Barbie. And so I was like, well, I got two cheat meals left, so I guess this is going to be one of them. Could you and not the is, then incorporate that into a fuller cheat meal, being like, we've no, done the shot, like, and now no. let's go to Wendy's or something? No, it was like 10 p.m. We're in the middle of Nebraska, in like far away from anything in Nebraska. And I had the kids, so oh. I... And I, and then I didn't, you know, I did it. And I'm like, well, if I eat Doritos, then I'll just wake up and want to die. So I just didn't. I just had a single shot of tequila and went to bed. Speaking of bright orange uh, foods. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And then uh, the fourth meal, our mutual friend, Mary Catherine, her husband, Steve, came out. And uh, it was just, I think, the week after my, uh, my fifth wedding anniversary with my husband. And so the four of us went out and ate a lot and it was really fun but we were at this this fancy pants restaurant that was very fancy pants italian food in boulder colorado i've actually been to that place it's really good it's it's fabulous and we're sitting there at the at the meal and this poor waiter because i i also had a couple glasses of wine because it's my cheat meal and And you don't have to explain yourself uh, of course you've had a few glasses of wine (laughs) yes exactly uh the, the the poor waiter, I was like, well, you know, it's not like I'm going to wake up tomorrow. And, and the point that I was just making a minute ago, it's not like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and feel terrible that I have to go home to my, you know, my fr- farm fresh eggs and my homemade fromage blanc from the goats that I milk. This isn't, this isn't like it, it, it at first it felt like a, such a restriction and now it feels like so much freedom because I feel so much healthier, but I appreciate food so much more and differently. I have such a different perspective on it because it's something that, you know, everybody does and everybody at times can take for granted. It's so much harder to take it for granted when it's limited and you have to use all of your resources and all of your creativity in order to procure it. So Kelly, I have two questions for you before we go. Number one, what is the most delicious meal that you have made and consumed within your rules based on the stuff that you have grown or killed or bartered for? What is the best meal that you have made during this year? Ooh, you know, I will say last week, so my neighbor had some cherries that came ripe and I took cheese over there and she let us pick some. I made a frozen custard with fresh cherries, just picked honey from my neighbor, uh, a little bit of maple syrup that I bartered with a friend in New York. And then I added, I know this is going to sound weird guy, but I added fromage blanc like a cheese base like a cultured cheese base to it see i was not expecting i was not expecting a dessert answer to this question but i wasn't either no that's fascinating really but it was you know it's so almost like a cheesecake a cherry cheesecake frozen custard i can get behind that maybe i'm I'm sort of thinking about it last question briefly as soon as the clock strikes midnight and this thing is over at the end of this month, and you've done the full year, is there a meal that you know you're going to rush out and get that you've been craving but haven't used one of your cheat meals to consume? 
So I will say we'll probably end up, there's been, there's a really great Vietnamese place that is close that has been really struggling through the pandemic. And I just want to go and give them all my money because <laughs> I, I have felt like through the pandemic, one of the things is making sure to support the people that I want to have stick around. Right. So I'll probably but you can't go. actually buy and eat their food because of right. this whole thing. So you're going to go and hit those local restaurants. Like, I think I'd go straight for like a fast food drive through meal. I think that would be my very first thing. But you might be a reformed woman now. You might be like, no, I, I don't want to put that stuff in my body. Uh, we'll see. I'm very excited to hang out with you again and be able to eat completely normally with you. But this is amazing. It's an incredible challenge. You are weeks away from being done. It is realbestlife.com. It's the homegrown year with my friend Kelly Maher. I think it's fascinating. I hope you did too. We're rooting for her down this final road. She's almost at the destination. So preemptively, congratulations, Kelly. We love you and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Love you too. The happy hour continues next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday, in this exact segment, actually, I was talking about Ted Lasso. This show that I finally got around to watching, people have been raving about it, and it is just as charming and delightful and amusing as they all said. And it stars Jason Sudeikis, and it got all these Emmy Award nominations. I think they set a record for that. A guy named Mike Ryan wrote a piece that someone sent me. They heard the segment. And the headline is, yeah, Jason Sudeikis is actually kind of like Ted Lasso in real life. And Mike Ryan relays this story from years ago. When Sudeikis and Ryan had met or there had been some sort of an interview and Ryan had opened up because he had just lost his father and he was really struggling with the loss. And Jason Sudeikis wrote him afterwards this beautiful, uplifting, incredibly kind email. And he was just basically a stranger at this point, not a complete stranger, but it was so personal and so lovely. And it's the type of thing that Ted Lasso would do. And the fact that Jason Sudeikis is kind of like that in real life makes me even happier about this show. You should check it out. They're not on the payroll. They don't sponsor the show. Just if you want to smile and feel good, watch Ted Lasso. Starring real-life Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this break. The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Glad to have you here. Earlier in today's show, back in our first hour, Chris Wallace the host and anchor of Fox News Sunday. He stopped by to talk about his upcoming show this weekend, some of the big political stories out of Washington, and much more. Here's a taste of my conversation with Chris Wallace. I am very eager to hear your take on the sequencing and the dynamics at play with this bipartisan infrastructure bill and then this mammoth eye-popping $3.5 trillion package that Democrats in the Senate at least say that they've agreed upon. And right now, I'm hearing from lawmakers in both chambers saying we're not really sure 
where this is going on either of those two fronts. We don't know who has the votes uh, for either of these bills, what order they would go in. Is there a game of chicken being played here? What do you hear about whether or not this huge amount of spending might go through? Because it feels like everything's kind of tentative and the ice is very thin. I think that's exactly right. And and that's what I'm hearing is that nobody quite knows, which is unusual because usually in Washington, by the time you, you get to showtime, the president is going to make an announcement or the majority leader is going to bring something to the floor. You know what's going to happen. But but we, we really don't, which makes it kind of exciting if you're in the news business. Not sure it's so exciting if you're uh, one of the people who's either trying to pass the bill or kill it. You know, you've got it, it is this extraordinary uh, conglomeration of things that the Democrats, the president and congressional Democrats are trying to pass a trillion dollar uh, bipartisan infrastructure plan. You know, as we normally think of infrastructure, roads, highways, bridges, uh, and that's the bipartisan plan. They've got at least five Republicans on board, we think, although I don't think all of them are solid. Uh, but you actually need 10 Republicans on board uh, to, to break a filibuster. And then, uh, you know, the, the White House is saying, so we're going to pass part of this with you guys. And the rest that we can't pass with you guys, we're going to pass by ourselves. And that is, at least at this point, a three and a half trillion dollar. Uh, <laughs> they call it human infrastructure. Uh, it, it, it's a social spending bill. You know, it expands Obamacare. It, it extends uh, child care, uh, it, it does some climate change initiatives, uh, education, a variety of other things. It's just put a immigration. dollars. They have some immigration of, of, in there, apparently. Well, they're trying to do that. And, and that's an interesting aspect to this as well. I mean, there's so much serious stuff. I mean, if this were all passed, it would be quite transformative. I mean, it would it would be as big as the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson or uh, the New Deal of, of FDR. So, I mean, we're talking about a serious uh, redefining of the role of government in people's lives. Uh, but, but for instance, one of the things I want in it is immigration. And, and, and it, to pass reconciliation, there's something, I don't want to get too far. Right, it has to be germane. Rule, which basically says that, you know, the primary purpose of this has to be budgetary. Yes, everything that you do in government has some financial impact, but it can't be a, a policy change that has a, a, a bit of a financial impact. And, to give you an example, when they tried as part of the COVID relief to pass an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, the Senate parliamentarian said, well, that isn't actually a budgetary thing. That's a, a different policy plan. And she stripped it from the plan. And as a result, when they passed the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief package, it didn't have that in it. And there's a lot of thought that, you know, that the Democrats know that she's going to strip it out of this plan, right. but then they can go back to the left wing of the party, yeah, the ALCs, and say, well, we tried. I think that's probably true, but I am still just sort of shaken by the dollar figure here, the dollar amount. You mentioned some of the Republicans who are on board with the bipartisan infrastructure plan. One of them is Mitt Romney, but even he was making noises about how insane in his mind, and I agree, $3.5 trillion is. That's roughly the size of the entire federal budget, everything spent by Uncle Sam in 2010, for instance. Uh, I remember all the way back, I'm old enough, Chris, that I remember the Obama stimulus debate, which was, what, roughly $800 billion with a B? Yeah. This is $3.5 trillion with a T. And I, I know with the crisis and coronavirus, trillions of dollars have just been thrown around like candy. 
Nevertheless, a $3.5 trillion proposal that they might try to do alone on a partisan vote, I mean, it it is a breathtaking attempt at the very least, and it just – it hasn't landed with the explosive detonation that I would have expected given a lot of the, the battles of the Obama era – are people just sort of resigned? Have they have numbers kind of lost meaning in the last few years? My full interview with Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace available on our free podcast. It's on demand, no charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you download your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch I filled in for Kennedy last night on FBN. I'll be doing so again on Monday. We had a little fun in a segment that they have recurring every day called Topical Storm. It's a very, very entertaining segment, in my opinion. It's written overwhelmingly by someone else, so I can't take full credit. But there was one topic that we covered that I had extra fun with, with a punchline at the very end that I want you to hear, and that's next. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on this Friday, coming to you from New York City. Last night on Fox Business Network, 8 p.m. Eastern, I was filling in for the great Kennedy, our dear friend. Whenever my name comes up and I'm not there, she yells, I married him, which is very confusing for a lot of people. In one sense of that word, it is true. But she and I are not married to each other. And she officiated. Anyway, she entrusts me with her show when she's gone from time to time. I always appreciate the opportunity, and it's a great challenge. There's a segment that they do, and it's really her baby, but she's got a writer who helps with it, and it's hilarious. It's called Topical Storm, where they take ridiculous stories from around the country, and they throw in a bunch of jokes and puns and all this stuff, and it is tailor-made for Kennedy. And the way that she delivers things and the wit and the sort of just eccentric way that she does her show. And they have decided that when I'm guest hosting, they're not getting rid of the segment. I'm going to do it, which I love. It's hard, though. It's a lot of prompter reading. You have to be funny. I go a little bit drier. I sort of do like a full normal news read. I don't go outrageous comedy in terms of like my inflection and stuff. And I think that works for me. I'm not going to try to imitate her because there's no point. She's one of a kind. But I enjoy it. And I go through and I read the scripts ahead of time. And sometimes I'll tweak a joke here or there. And last night, it's four topics. And it's always a highlight for me when I get a chance to do this. If you've never seen it, you really should watch her show. It's very good. It's unlike anything else on cable news. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Thursday, Fox Business Network. So if you want to see it with yours truly, subbing again, I'll be here on Monday for that. But in our second topic of the four, there was a strange story out of California involving a woman who found herself in a tight spot. I'll explain. Here's the clip from last night and wait to the very end for a joke that I actually wrote myself because I felt like it was probably – and stick around to the very end because that was the ultimate joke that I was most excited about. Listen. In California, a naked woman was rescued by firefighters after she got stuck between two buildings. 
And here I thought being between houses was just a PC term for homelessness in the state. Rescue workers were called to the scene of an auto body shop in Orange County after employees heard a woman screaming for help but couldn't pinpoint her location. Firefighters got on the scene, went up to the roof, and looked down to find the woman wedged in a one-foot gap between two walls, or as it's known here in New York City, a spacious studio apartment. The woman couldn't crawl out, the firefighters couldn't get in, so they had to perform a technical rescue which involved cutting through the building, which is fitting because if you have the right tools, this is also the fastest way to get through California traffic. After two hours, the woman was rescued and taken to a hospital for evaluation. Officials say they have no idea why the woman was naked or how she got between these buildings. But whatever caused this, I'm just glad Kennedy's okay. So I have to admit, I wrote that last joke. The, all the other jokes were from the writer. He had a different punchline at the very end. And I just decided because Kennedy spends a lot of her free time in California, she's got a house out there. I said, you know, I think it's hilarious to imagine this being Kennedy. Help! So we just wrote her into the joke. And not just that, I had Quiet Wyatt clip it and we posted it on social media. And I did not run it by her first. I think we know each other well enough that she wouldn't actually be offended. But you never quite know. Right? So he put it out there into the world and then she retweeted and, and she loved it. She was laughing. She said, I'm fine. I made it. And so it was all good fun. Now, I will say this. Quiet Wyatt, in our meeting today, because we were talking about maybe playing this audio and sort of making this joke at Kennedy's expense, all in good fun, Wyatt, and I'm very proud of him for this, actually. I'm very proud because Max is off today. Producer Christine is still on vacation She's going to still be on vacation next week, too, on Monday. Then she finally is going to show up for work, apparently, allegedly. But Quiet Wyatt said to me, you know, I'm surprised this wasn't producer Christine, who was the woman stuck between the buildings naked, screaming for help. Because she is allegedly on vacation in New Hampshire, and this story is from California, but we don't know that she's in New Hampshire. I have no proof of that. Airplanes can get places quickly. She's been strangely evasive this week, too. Who's to say that she didn't go to California, get into some nonsense, consume an entire vat of mama's juice, and somehow ended up in this predicament? So I'm just saying it's possible. It hadn't even occurred to me, but quiet Wyatt raised this possibility, and I think he makes an excellent point. This may have been, there's no proof that this was not producer Christine. Now, when I said that she was evasive. This is what I mean by that. Before she went on vacation, she was talking a big game because I was on vacation the previous week after July 4th, so we were going to not be on the air together for two weeks straight. And she said, oh, well, I'll be up at the lake in New Hampshire. Okay, sure. Well, let's, let's play along and say that she's in New Hampshire. Just bear with me. She said, but... During that week of vacation, like, I can call in, like, if you guys want me, we can do a few home stretches. Wyatt, like, back me up here. She brought this up, right? I did not ask her. None of us asked her to take time out of her vacation. She volunteered multiple times that she wanted to come on during home stretches, correct? I I would say that's correct, but I'm going to plead the fifth. 
Well, you, you just didn't. You said that it was correct. And then you pled the fifth. That's not how it works. I am correct. I am not lying. I'm not making this up. And Max will back me up as well. So Christine's like, oh, yeah, no, well, I, I can do it. That's It's not a big deal. I can join for a couple home stretches. I believe every day this week, Quiet Wyatt, who is filling in for producer Christine, Christine, who knows the struggles and travails of trying to book guests. And in fact, sometimes when certain guests are difficult to book or elusive, she will express her frustration over that situation. She knows how difficult it can be. And yet, time after time, when Quiet Wyatt tried to book producer Christine to fulfill her own proactive promise to come on this show during the home stretch, she hinted multiple times, we just finally were going to settle for once. Every single time we got a flat rejection. Oh, no, she's too busy. Oh, no, she's out on the boat again. Oh, no, she's just about to go to this other thing. I think she was wedged between two walls naked. I think that was the problem. She was unavailable because she was stuck. She didn't want to ask Wyatt for help. Then she was in the hospital being evaluated. You heard it in the segment. It's a news item. But I I do find it interesting because she's like, oh, yeah, let's do it. And then time, nope, nope. Oh, sorry, nope. She became the difficult, ungettable guest, pushing us off. Let's try tomorrow. How about next week? She's now telling us that she's going to show up and call in on Monday, on her 40th birthday, from the spa. I do enjoy the image of her with cucumbers over each eye, lying there, getting all like, you know, pedicure and all these treatments while she's like on speakerphone with us. That would be amusing. But I'm not going to even promote or tease that producer Christine will join us on the home stretch on Monday. Because I'll believe it when I see it, or I guess it's radio. I'll believe it when I hear it. (laughs) Because she was just like, oh, hey, yeah, whenever you want me, just let me know. It's like, should be the easiest booking ever especially because she calls us her best friends. Well, guess what? When the rubber met the road, she just ghosted us. Christine the ghost is what we might start calling her. Ghost Christine. Cookie the unfriendly ghost. So, look, I hope she's having a good vacation. I want to underline and reiterate, it was not my idea to try to get her on In fact, generally, my attitude towards people vacation is let them take their vacation. Don't bother them. Let them enjoy themselves and get rejuvenated and not have to think about work. That's the whole point is to de-stress. And Cookie needs some de-stressing. Let's be clear. But she was was like volunteered for this. Like, hey, pick me. Mm Mm-mm. I think it was a troll. I think she was doing this on purpose, just like almost like a little flex. Like, oh, yeah, she wants to feel wanted, but then she gets off on being withholding. I'm psychoanalyzing producer Christine here, which actually probably means that I'm the one who's going insane. See, I'm her therapist on air. She has another therapist. She said this. She has two, me and the other therapist, the trained professional. Maybe I 
and having producer Christine withdrawal. Like I need a little bit of that crazy in my life. It's been two full weeks. So here I am making up all sorts of theories about her. The point is her birthday is on Monday. She will be 40, the big 4-0. Maybe, in fairness to her, maybe all of her refusals this week to come on, it's not because she's ducking us. Maybe she just didn't remember offering because she's, you know, she's getting up there. 40 on Monday. She's going to kill me. She's going to absolutely kill me. She's going to come back to the show. It's actually, it's a good thing because I'm here in New York on Monday. She gets back Tuesday when I'll be back in D.C. It's maybe a good thing because she'll come blowing in from her vacation with a big cookie smile on her face and then the assault begins. So for my own safety, I'm getting out of town before she gets back after that joke. Well, happy birthday in advance to producer Christine. We will supposedly have her in this segment on Monday. We'll see. In the meantime, bonus Benson tomorrow and Sunday on the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. And I'm back here behind this microphone in New York and filling in for Kennedy again on Monday evening. Have a great weekend. We will talk to you then. It's the Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.